KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. As we enter our third year living in a pandemic, we're talking about mental fatigue. The fatigue that's been brought on by the pandemic is completely normal and understandable. I'm Christina Kim with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We remember the life and legacy of Tijuana journalist Margarito Martinez Esquivel. Somebody like Margarito was like an essential person to document these scenes. And I think to have someone go out there, you know, did sort of keep the eyes of the world on an important issue for Tijuana. A look at why micro-enterprise home kitchens will be popping up around the county. And can you love someone you don't remember? A conversation with a local author. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. As the country continues to battle the overwhelming surge of Omicron cases, the Biden administration is taking steps to further increase the availability of free test kits and N95 masks to help mitigate the spread. According to the CDC, the highly contagious variant accounted for 99.5% of all new COVID cases last week, and they predict over 61,000 virus-related deaths will occur in the next four weeks. After two years since the first cases of COVID-19 were first confirmed in the United States, experts are saying that the trajectory of the global pandemic might soon move into an endemic phase. Here to discuss this and some of our most pressing COVID-19 questions is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, welcome back to the program. Thanks. Great to be with you again. Dr. Topol, we're entering year three of this global pandemic. What are your thoughts on a growing consensus that we might be entering into an endemic phase? And what exactly does that mean? Right. Well, that's the hope. Uh, The hope is that we're going to see containment of the virus where we'll have outbreaks, but they'll be of modest size and occasional, not what we've been going through now with a million infections a day. I mean, we, towards the end of May and June, we were getting down there to what that level of containment might look like, where it was quiet. There was some circulating virus, but it was of, you know, modest levels. That would be where we want to be. That's probably the best we can hope for, for the foreseeable future, but it isn't certain at all. We're so far away from that now. And even though we started to descend in certain places uh, in the country, there's many other parts of the country that have yet to fully declare. And there's a long way down this descent, as we're seeing places like Puerto Rico and and others. So that's the hope. But uh, whether we're going to get there in the weeks ahead is not entirely clear. And one other other point, whether we'll stay there, whether because of our lack of containment around the world, there could be yet another variant that could come along that would be very challenging, that would upset the whole containment theme. So we'll have to see over time. Right. And that's my follow-up question for you. What role will global vaccine equity play in reaching a more contained stage of the pandemic? Yeah, that's really important to stress because 
We just saw a report today in Nature that the death toll for the pandemic is at least three to five times what's been reported. And especially in the countries throughout the world that are in the low and middle income group that are woefully under vaccinated still. And so that's where the containment issue is vital because if we don't contain the virus throughout the world, that's where we have the potential to see these variants emerge through evolution of the virus that goes through so many uh, people, particularly if they're immunocompromised people. So that is a big concern that we hopefully this year are going to achieve. You know, we've had almost 10 billion doses of vaccines out there, but they're not at all evenly distributed. That's what we need is to get 20 billion doses out there and hopefully cover uh, the species as well as we can. Right now in the midst of Omicron, how do you think greater availability of free test kits and N95 masks will help slow the spread or kind of change the way we're dealing with this current surge? Well, it's better than nothing. The fact you can order at least four test kits through the mail and you can pick up in the days ahead N95 masks for free at local pharmacies. These are welcome additions. Wish they had been instituted months ago, if not you know a year ago. However, uh, we still have a lot of uh, this virus to face, perhaps even uh, a different version in the future. So it's still it's it's late, but it's still welcome. And it shows responsiveness of the government to the pleas for having these free tests. We need a lot more of them out, out there, as well as the high quality masks that we should be using. Early on with the spread of Omicron, Experts noted that the variant was less likely to lead to hospitalizations. Are we still seeing that or is that beginning to surge as more people get it? Yeah, this is a really important misperception to clear up. So a lot of people think, well, because Omicron breakthrough infections, people who've been vaccinated two or even three shots are getting Omicron infections. Yes, that's true. The protection against infection for vaccines with Omicron is not high at all. However, the protection against hospitalizations is about 90%. And after three months, it drops down to around 80%. That's fantastic. And that's the reason why the booster is so essential. The two shots only are about 50% protection from hospitalization. But the three shots, the booster changes that and almost doubles it. And it actually gets it to protection that's like the original virus two years ago, whereby the initial vaccines a year ago had 90, 95% protection from hospitalization. So this is really uh, important to emphasize. We continue to see a lot of confusion surrounding best practices for self-quarantine if one has been exposed or, you know, test positive for a test. What would you advise? Yeah, this has been very disappointing with CDC because they are not following best practices from other countries. The way it works in places that have been relying on rapid tests uh, throughout the past a year or more in the pandemic. We are so far behind that. But for example, in the United Kingdom, you have to have two negative tests. Most people will not be negative by day five. In fact, about a third will not be negative at day five. But starting at day six and day seven, if there's two negative tests, then sure, you can leave isolation. But the, the idea that the CDC recommended that after five days, you just go out and wear a mask without testing. That was ludicrous because it, does, it completely defies what has been established best practices around the world. I'm glad you brought up the UK and England because many countries are starting to relax preventative measures. England may no longer require masks in the future because scientists there are saying Omicron has already peaked. What are your thoughts on this approach? 
Well, there was a report from England from the Office of National Security, so-called ONS, today that showed that the benefit of wearing face masks was substantial for preventing infection. So I don't know how to jive that. Um, I still think that masks, particularly KN95, KN94s, N95s, high-quality masks, indoor gatherings are useful for the time being. We have to get through this Omicron wave and see if we get to a level of containment. If we get there, then it's a chance to relax uh, the mass, but we're not anywhere close to that point yet. Speaking of global research, a recent study from Israel indicates that while a fourth dose of the vaccine will increase antibody levels, it will most likely do little in preventing Omicron breakthrough infections. What does this data mean for the surge we're currently in? Well, this is again where that mix-up is, because we don't have any data yet from Israel for the fourth uh, shot, that is the second booster, for preventing severe disease, hospitalizations, and deaths. So to jump to any conclusion that the fourth shot won't be helpful, it's premature. Again, Omicron is so different from the original virus with over 50 different mutations that we just don't recognize it. It has immune escape. That's why we're seeing all these infections with Omicron. But what's different is the booster works through our memory cells, the B and T cells. And so what we don't know right now is how long does that booster that we took work? Does it last for four months, six months, or does it start to wane? And that's what the question Israel will get us soon, because we have to see the data for protection for hospitalizations and whether that fourth shot makes a big difference. We said earlier that the CDC anticipates over 61,000 more virus-related deaths in the coming weeks. Is it possible to say when we might see the peak of this surge? Well, we're averaging 2,000 deaths a day right now. So that calculation of 60,000 in the next month has certainly got some basis. The problem is almost every one of those deaths are in people who are unvaccinated. And then there's a a smaller, less than 10% or so that were waned because they didn't get a booster. It's all preventable. And that's what's so pathetic and sad that we have not gotten our vaccination rates and our booster rates as high as they can go. And we're so far away, you know, we're at 62% for vaccination, just a slightly better than that in California. And our booster rate is terrible from compared to countries that are at least twice as many people who are eligible are boosted than us. Plus we wait five months, which is only a recent change, and it should be four months or even less. The UK is at three months to have a booster. So we're just not pulling out all the stops to prevent these deaths and hospitalizations. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Dr. Topol, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. As the coronavirus pandemic soldiers on, so do mental health struggles. With the pandemic entering its third year and with the Omicron variant bringing a mammoth wave of cases, mental fatigue can be impossible to avoid. I'm joined by marriage and family therapist Lindsay DeMoose from Sharp Mesa Vista to talk about how to help manage pandemic fatigue and the stress that can come with it. Lindsay, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. A recent poll found 87% of respondents believe there's a mental health crisis in the nation today. Do you agree with that assessment? Unfortunately, I do. I think that this pandemic has taken such a significant toll on our collective mental health and has brought about much fatigue. And so I do think that there is 
increased awareness about how we overall are significantly struggling. So what's important for us to keep in mind when it comes to our mental health? I think it's really important to start out by checking in on ourselves, to check in on how we have been experiencing these past two years and the impact that it's caused to us individually. I want to normalize that the fatigue that's been brought on by the pandemic is completely normal and understandable. We're really not built to be able to sustain and endure this type of ongoing and prolonged stress. So I think giving ourselves the opportunity to really recognize what we're struggling with is the first step in the process of being able to receive support and heal from this terrifying and and really difficult pandemic. What can people do to help cope with mental fatigue during this ongoing pandemic? It really depends on what you're experiencing. So some people really need to be focusing on ensuring that their physical needs are being met. It might be a matter of looking at any sort of calming strategies that you can employ, whether that's engaging in breathing exercises or physical activity, but with more persistent, severe symptoms that people could be experiencing, professional help may certainly be indicated. So it's really a matter of recognizing the severity of what you've been experiencing over the past two years going into this third year and receiving support, asking for support. You mentioned the importance of recognizing what we've been going through. What are some some warning signs people want to look out for, not only in their own lives, but but also with uh, those of, of our loved ones? Just some warning signs to start off with would be feeling fatigued more often than not, having sleep problems, a change in your eating habits, a change in your weight or your health, feeling a loss of your willpower or control, losing interest or having apathy in terms of connecting with others, getting out of the house, even taking lots of time off or um, drinking more, using substances, I also see people having a lot of difficulty in terms of managing their anger, their irritability, being very quick to react. So there's such a wide range of warning signs that we may have otherwise determined were just kind of everyday things that we struggled with, but collectively can be a bigger indication of mental health fatigue that comes with the pandemic. How has treating mental health been changed by the pandemic? I think that this has really been our time to shine in the field of mental health, which was such a taboo thing in my experience previously. Now, so many people are experiencing and recognizing that they are actually struggling mentally. And with that, they're taking the opportunity to be able to access resources for mental health. And so it's to the point now where lots of individual practitioners, lots of institutions that have various programs have waiting lists. And this is not something that we've necessarily seen before the pandemic. And so actually the reframe is this has been a really phenomenal opportunity to be able to value the impact and the importance of mental health resources and take those opportunities for support. Have you noticed any different mental health symptoms in uh, year two of the pandemic from what you saw in the early days of the pandemic? At this time last year, I think we had this collective hope that we were going to see some semblance of an end to this with the vaccination rollout. And so we, you know, we had some gas left in the tank to be able to persist and just to cross the finish line. And now it almost seems like 
completing year two, where it's like we've finished a marathon and then we're finding out that the race actually hasn't ended and we have another 26.2 miles to go. So for the majority of the population, that would really bring about an increased amount of anger, of frustration, of overwhelm, of sadness. And these types of uh, reactions that we have may be much more chronic and persistent where in year one, we saw impacts on mental health being something that could be reversible, that could be managed with techniques that one could employ themselves. And now what we're seeing is that people need a lot more intervention. What are, if any, some misconceptions about mental health you've seen during the pandemic? I think that people have experienced this misconception that mental health issues are uncommon, that they're the only ones that are really deeply struggling with pandemic fatigue. I think that people still feel like they'll be judged for using mental health resources. And then going back to something that has been an unfortunate tried and true misconception is that even something like you know addiction is coming from a lack of willpower and a character deficit. I think people still have difficulties in, in acknowledging that they are among others that are truly struggling with this and that it's okay for them to be able to seek help. We've been talking a lot about the negative impact the pandemic has brought to many of our lives. Are there any positives that jump out to you during this time? I think in year two, echoing off of what we've experienced in year one, the importance of maintaining connection of being able to look at how we can employ different health routines and solidify structure within our lives. I think if we've been able to maintain or get back to those practices, people see a significant impact. So um, there is a sense of community and connection that can come from using those tools. And like I said earlier, I think a big bonus that has come from the pandemic has been recognizing that we all are struggling and that there are actually uh, resources and support systems in place to be able to guide us through that process and not having to do that alone. You mentioned resources. What are they and uh, how are they available to people who are struggling with their mental health? I personally think that the It's Up to Us campaign that the San Diego County has uh, utilized for a long time is a great resource for accessing San Diego's available support system, and that's at uptousd.org. I also, coming from Sharp Mesa Vista, know that we have such a wide range of, of resources, whether it's inpatient care, intensive outpatient care, that we have available to the majority of San Diego County. Even utilizing the employee assistant program from your employer is such a helpful resource that many of us have forgotten about over the years, and lots of those EAP programs have very short wait times to be able to seek therapeutic support from a provider. I've been speaking with Lindsay DeMoose, a licensed marriage and family therapist with Sharp Mesa Vista. Lindsay, thank you. Thank you, Jade, for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Christina Kim. Maureen is off. 
A Tijuana photojournalist was shot to death outside of his home Monday before heading to work. Margarito Martinez Esquivel covered crime and security issues in TJ. He worked as a journalist and fixer across different outlets, including BBC, the Los Angeles Times, and the San Diego Union Tribune. Sandra Dibble, former Union Tribune reporter who covered the Tijuana area for decades, said without Martinez's work, a lot of murders would have gone unreported. Somebody like Margarito was like an essential person to document these scenes. And I think to have someone go out there, um, you know, did sort of keep the eyes of the world on, on an important issue for Tijuana that otherwise would be easy to overlook. Now Esquivel's murder has shaken up many in the area and industry. KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis crossed paths with Esquivel to cover the region and joins us now. Gustavo, welcome. Hello, Jade. First, I'm sorry to hear about your colleague. Tell us about Margarito and his career as a photojournalist over the years. Thank you. Um, and yeah, Margarito, actually, he got a late start to journalism. He, he didn't start covering crime until he was 30. Uh, and it was because of his mom, who was also a journalist in Tijuana. I, I remember Margarito telling me about the first time he took a picture of a body. He was out shopping with his mom when all of a sudden they heard gunfire uh, down the street. And obviously, most people ran. And I remember Margarito saying, like, a normal mom would have told her son to run. But my mom wasn't a normal mom. She was a journalist. And his mom told him to grab a camera and head to the scene, which he did. And I think from there, he just fell in love with the rush and excitement of covering crime in one of the most dangerous cities in the world. Margarito had a reputation for being the first at this scene, sometimes the only one at this scene. He really earned the trust of local police officers who would tip him off, and he helped other journalists, too. One of the things that stood out about him is he was always smiling, even though he was just surrounded by death and covering the most gruesome things in Tijuana. And at the time of his death, Margarito, I believe, was freelancing for seven different publications. So he definitely left a big void in terms of coverage over there. You mentioned that he was a fixer, one of the unsung heroes of the journalism industry. Can you tell us about his role in the cross-border journalism community? Yeah, well, for those who don't follow the industry, fixers are people who journalists call whenever they travel to places that they haven't been before. So think of someone like the BBC coming from Great Britain to Tijuana to report on the city's murder rate. Those journalists who aren't local, they don't have the sourcing, they don't know the city, how to get around, which neighborhoods to avoid or who to talk to. So they rely on fixers like Margarito, a local journalist who are sort of their guide. Right, The fixers will hook them up with contacts, uh, information only locals who have years of experience would have. They do all of the heavy lifting behind the scenes, but they don't really get any of the recognition or glory, right? They don't appear on TV. Their bylines aren't on the story. But like you said, right, Margarito worked with journalists from New York, uh, Los Angeles, Italy, Germany, all over the world. And in, especially in Mexico, journalists don't often get paid a lot. So in some cases, they made more money as fixers than, than reporters. What do you know about the incident so far? Well, we don't know much right now, right? We know the basics. He was shot outside his home uh, Monday morning as he was heading to work. Police haven't publicly identified any suspects, although there are a lot of rumors and theories uh, circulating. We do know that Margarito's death has gotten a lot of attention, really throughout Mexico and internationally uh, as well, just because of his reputation of being uh, the go-to crime guy in Tijuana. But, you know, elected officials like the mayor of Tijuana, the governor of Baja California, all the way up to the president of Mexico have called for justice. They say they want to try to find the killer. Although it's important to note that the odds are, are stacked against him, right? I mean, most of murders in Mexico and really violent crime goes unsolved. Uh, the Washington Post reported just a few years ago that 
as much as 98% of all violent crime in Mexico, including murders, go unsolved. Were there any recent signs that Esquivel was being threatened? It's been reported that he did face some threats while he was streaming on Facebook Live. Uh, and he did file a complaint about that with the officials. Uh, I do know Mexico has a federal government protection program for journalists. Uh, and it's been said that Margarito was in the process of applying for that protection, but obviously didn't get it or it wasn't effective enough to save his life on Monday. Do you know if authorities are looking into the possibility that his murder was an attempt to silence him and stop something he was working on? I think it's definitely a possibility, although it hasn't really been verified. Uh, it wouldn't be out of the ordinary. You know, reporters are killed in Mexico at a, at a really high rate. So I'd say it's a possibility, but it's too early to tell. We don't really have enough information to definitively say what the motive was. And talk a bit more about the climate for journalists in Mexico. I mean, globally, journalism is dangerous work. How does Mexico stack up? It stacks up there with countries that are active war zones. And, and that's not hyperbole, right? The uh, Committee to Protect Journalists counts the numbers of killings around the world, and they consider it one of the most dangerous places uh, outside of active war zones. The Committee to Protect Journalists have counted 134 killings of reporters in Mexico since 1992. Uh, other organizations that tracked this reported more, about 150 or so. And that is part of the reason why Margarito's death is getting so much attention in and outside of Mexico. He's the second journalist to be killed so far this year, and it's only the 19th of January. The other one was Jose Luis Gamboa, who was found uh, with stab wounds in Veracruz. Is there any effort to stop these violent crimes? I mean, not much, right? We, we talked about some of the protections for journalists. There's talk about expanding those. But Margarito is working in, in one of the most dangerous cities in Mexico. Uh, he lived in, in a dangerous neighborhood and, and exposed himself to that risk. Um, I think a lot of the sadness and frustration from journalists in Mexico is that there isn't really that much that's being done to protect journalists over there. there there's a sense of outrage and indignation, but there isn't a sense of, you know, Margarito will be the last one, right? They kind of expect it to happen again, if not in Tijuana and other parts of Mexico, which is kind of the, the tragedy in all this. I think a lot of the attention right now is going to be focused on trying to honor Margarito's death by really providing better protection for journalists, at least raising more awareness or helping out in any way they can. I mean, the most immediate example for Margarito is a GoFundMe page that they set up for, for his family, his, his widow and 16-year-old daughter, who unfortunately are left to live without him. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative border reporter Gustavo Solis. Gustavo, thank you very much. Thank you, Jade. Microenterprise home kitchen operations, or MECOs, could soon become legal in San Diego County. The County Board of Supervisors unanimously voted last week to begin legalizing these home kitchens, which until now have been operating in something of a gray zone since being introduced a few years ago, leaving local entrepreneurs like Rosalind Johnson, who opened Clara's Kitchen after she was laid off from her job, confused. It was okay for you to do it, I thought. I got my business license, I got my food certification, got my seller's permit. I thought that I was ready to go and find out I wasn't. <laughs> 
KBBS Speak City Heights reporter Jacob Ayer has been following this story and the people behind the county's Mikos, and he joins me now for more. Hey, Jacob. Hey, Christina. Thanks for having me on. First and foremost, what exactly is a micro-enterprise home kitchen? What does it generally look like? And what restrictions does it have in terms of what types of food it can serve and how many people it can serve? So in general, a micro-enterprise home kitchen, new type of food facility that can operate out of a private home. Uh, Cooks are going to prepare, cook and serve food to consumers all on the same day. And that can be through delivery, takeout or dine in the home. And then in terms of foods that they can serve, it's really as long as within health and safety standards, you can try what you want. So this is a little bit of an expansion of that cottage food operation, right? Which was only allowing for certain baked goods. Is is that right? Well, I would say this is different in the fact that with the Mikos, which they're commonly referred to, this isn't just a limitation of baked goods. You can be fully cooking, uh, whether it's a gumbo like Rosalind was doing, or whether it's Uh, international food like Delilah, who the other woman I spoke to was cooking. I know you spoke with several people who run Mikos. We heard from Rosalind at the top. And as you just mentioned, you spoke to Delilah Davis of Paradise Hills. Here's what she had to tell you. This is like the perfect opportunity for me to be able to go into business, generate cash flow in order to establish a business. What do we know of the people that are more likely to start Mikos? And why is this a good business option for them? Uh, So for people who are looking to start Amico, this is a good business option because, first of all, oftentimes these are people who are at a disadvantage themselves or live in disadvantaged communities. This creates another path to supplementing family income. In the case of Delilah, she's a disabled veteran, and for her, cooking for others was her primary way of now earning an income to support her family. So what are supporters of Mikos saying are the advantages of legalizing them? What are the greater social impacts of these types of industries? In general, there's actually quite a few in terms of what supporters say are benefits of these Mikos. Um, There's economic opportunities for small-scale home cooking operations. And what Delilah said herself and what supporters across the board generally say is this primarily helps women, immigrants, and people of color. Another thing that Mikos do is enable family members to provide in-home care, whether they're taking care of someone who's disabled or an older relative, and that way they can still earn the income. Other things that supporters say this can help with is to alleviate some of the stress caused by the COVID-19 pandemic and supply a different means for family income. And a couple other things um, would just be to help food service operations, perhaps in remote locations, or letting even local entrepreneurs and restaurateurs try different things on a small-scale menu before they take it to a brick-and-mortar or a, uh, a cart operation. Nearby Riverside County already legalized these types of kitchens two years ago. What lessons can San Diego County learn from their rollout? So yesterday, I didn't, a voice I didn't include was Karen Melvin. She's in charge of the San Diego Microenterprise Home Kitchen Coalition. And she said since Riverside County allowed the Mikos back two years ago, There have been zero food safety complaints and only two nuisance complaints. So I think in terms of the health and safety, um, it's just keeping up what Riverside's doing. One thing that was brought up by Rosalind was that perhaps traffic backup at these new spots where these Mikos will be held and garbage disposal, those may become an issues in her mind, um, as well explaining how to legally set up the operations to many of the people who want to get involved. So maybe that's where the county or other uh, government entities need to step in and, and create pilot programs or, 
or programs to help teach people how to get started. Are there any people who are opposed to Nikos? And really, do you anticipate there being any challenges in enforcing health and safety standards in these home kitchens? There are people opposed. Um, most who are say that they have less enforced health standards or that they could harm brick and mortar restaurant operations or perhaps uh, like cart or car uh, restaurant operations. So far, the data has not shown that's true in terms of health and safety or harming other restaurants. Mikos, at least from the data so far, are just adding another option in a, in a health in a healthy and safe way for people to locally support their community. As I mentioned, the Board of Supervisors voted just last week, making the way for legal Mikos. So what's next and when can we expect to see more of them? So the second ordinance reading to allow these microenterprise home kitchens uh, in the county will come during the board's land use meeting on January 26th. So just in about a week now, if the board then votes in favor, Mikos will be allowed to operate within 30 days. So we're looking at the end of uh, February for that. And then the trial program will last at least two years across the region. After that point, it will be decided what happens. I've been speaking with KPBS Speak City Heights reporter Jacob Ayer. Thank you so much, Jacob. Thank you. Tucked away in southeast San Diego is a hidden stairway that for years has been neglected. But now, as KPBS race and equity reporter Christina Kim reports, the hidden gem is being revitalized for and by the community. If you don't know what you're looking for, chances are you might just walk by Valencia Park's secret stairs. It gets the heart pumping, I'm telling you. The more than 150 stairs connect Las Alturas Terrace, which overlooks the San Diego skyline, across Trinidad Way all the way to Church Ward Street in the southeast San Diego neighborhood. How the stairs came to be, and their purpose, are a bit of a mystery to local residents. They've been a part of Barry Pollard's life since he was a kid. I personally remember using these stairs walking from my home to Morris High School. And that was back in the 70s. Over the years, the stairs fell into disrepair, with overgrown vegetation and areas that tend to flood after heavy rainfall. Around the 90s, 80s, you know, they're cutting in some of the service because of the budget for the city and maybe some drain stuff needs to occur. So there are some structural issues that we're, we're working through. That is, until last year, when Valencia Park residents, with help from Councilmember Monica Montgomery Stepp's office, started to clean up the stairs. Now, thanks in part to a $15,000 donation from Blue Shield, the stairs are getting a makeover. The effort is spearheaded by Pollard's organization, the Urban Collaboration Project. Lights are going to be put in, and four local artists are beautifying the secret stairs with a mural of flowers. The goal, to make it more inviting and change perceptions of the neighborhood. I've heard stories of people calling this uh, the hood or uh, the ghetto, and I've, I've lived here in this area all my life, and I never thought of it that way. Shannon White is one of the muralists. She believes art makes places more inviting for everyone. And more importantly, it makes people feel good about themselves and their neighborhood. There is a sense of pride that comes along with uh, something like this. There's also a sense of ownership because this is, you know, if you live in this area, then you consider this yours. The artist decided to cover the stairs with different color poppies. Because while no one is 100% sure why these stairs were built, 
the native California flowers are an homage to a local story that says a developer created them so his wife could go collect wildflowers. I wasn't aware of like that story to begin with. And so when I learned about that, it kind of made it like a little bit more special. Isabel Garcia is another muralist working on the project. We wanted to include something that actually is important to like the area itself. The Valencia Park neighborhood, like so much of San Diego, is gentrifying at a rapid pace. Home prices here rose nearly 25 percent last year and are expected to continue rising, according to Zillow. That's not lost on Garcia, who has witnessed many of the changes firsthand. As a local artist, she says she's very intentional about how her work intersects with these forces. For me to be involved in this and using like my art in that way, like it's for the people that live here and I want them to be able to feel, you know, included and know that like this is for them. So far, the response from neighbors has been overwhelmingly positive, says Cherise Villaseñor, another one of the artists. It brightens people's faces up. So what I've seen from here is like even seeing the people passing by, seeing that any color is going to be brought into that area really does brighten people's faces to know that some type of change is coming. Abner Soto-Rodriguez, who lives right next door to the steps, says he's already seeing the positive change. I think it's very much more inviting. It's nice to see people walk up and down. And that's exactly what the Secret Stairs makeover was intended to do. Invite people in the community to use this public space, exercise, and take pride in Valencia Park. Christina Kim, KPBS News. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Christina Kim with Jade Heidman. We revisit an interview about a book that was inspired by the Buddhist concepts of nirvana and detachment and explores the power of memory and desire. La Mesa author Serena Delon grew up in Thailand, surrounded by the myths and ghost stories that carried the cultural traditions of the past. But her debut novel is set in a utopian future. In it, human memories are erased every four years as a way of living in peace without war. But eventually, some memories find their way in. And the book asks the question, can you love someone if you don't remember? Serena Delon's book is called Reset, she spoke to Midday Edition co-host Maureen Cavanaugh in May. Here's that interview. Now, your novel is set after a series of catastrophic wars, and in an effort to stop that annihilation, memories are reset. Why did you focus on memory being the nexus of human problems? Well, um, because I grew up in Thailand, I was surrounded by the culture and the teachings of Buddhism, even though I'm not. And Buddhism teaches that the path to nirvana is detachment. And I thought, well, if memories are the seeds of all types of attachment, erasing memories would be a natural shortcut to peace. That's how I got the idea. Now, there was an incident as you struggled with what to write that sparked the idea for this book. Can you tell us about that? Yes, actually, um, Reset is the first book I've ever finished. And previous to that, um, I've just been writing, you know, over and over again, trying to get to a story. And, and I was writing 
for months, uh, this one story. And um, one night at about 3 a.m. in the morning, I decided that I hated the story and I erased everything. And But in that moment, as I was staring at the blank screen, um, a question came to me. What if we as human can erase our memories just as we do any computer program? And what kind of world would we have? And why would it be necessary? And those questions kind of propelled me forward. And the one question that you had mentioned, can you love someone you don't remember, pretty much haunted me the entire time I was writing. In creating this world, uh, to most people, it, it might sound pretty good. Your concept of the four cities where the people of the earth live sounds beautiful, you know, on the surface, mm-hmm. at least. Tell us what life is like there. It is a utopia in every sense of the word. Um, I wanted to go into a place where if the last war were to happen to us, what would be the one thing that we would find most valuable, and that's peace. And in this world where peace is the most important thing, it would be something that we'd want to protect. It would be something that society would want to protect. And so the utopia has this uh, life where everyone's taken care of because the idea is to protect the whole of humanity. So all resources are shared. Um, There's no money because uh, extreme capitalism really has no place in this world because memories are, if memories are erased every four years, there's no point in accumulating wealth and no point in building empire and dynasties. Um, Also, you know, everyone's assigned a place to live. So there's no homelessness. And because there's no homelessness, there's no hunger. Um, Everyone is assigned a job. Pretty much, you know, life is this easy uh, way of living. And um, I wanted to kind of create a world where we all or the readers can feel conflicted about liking. Because, you know, eventually in the book, the readers will get to know two characters who whose memories were erased and are trying to find each other. And so, you know, this utopia became their dystopia. And, you know, some every utopia is someone's dystopia because whenever you place upon another your belief and they don't have a choice in it, um, someone is going to be unhappy. As you mentioned, in in the four cities, in this utopia, every four years, everyone's memories are erased. But Mm -hmm. that erasure does not always work perfectly in your book. Can you read us a short passage where one of your characters is starting to recognize something in his dreams? I think there's something I'm supposed to find out about the past than just says, like, I don't know, but I keep getting these dreams. Dreams aren't real, Benja. There's just your mind firing synapses, making connections, cleaning out junk. They'll feel real to me, he says. Eris thinks of her own nonsensical dreams and how they too feel real to her. But they are just dreams. They're not links to the past nor premonitions of the future. And even if one could visit the past, why do it? To her, Tabla Raza is a gift the planner had bestowed on humanity. 
Every four years, minds are erased of all the reasons to hate so everyone can coexist in harmony. Every time she gives the children a tour at the museum, she is reminded of how fragile peace is. Scattered human skeletons, scorched sky, collapsed buildings. She would gladly take this version of reality over the alternative. That was Serena Dahlin reading from her new book called Reset. And thank you for that. Thank you so much. Now, Serena, Asian Americans are experiencing an outburst of, I guess you could call it, generational hatred fueled Mm. by decades of anti-Asian sentiment. The humans in Reset move beyond that kind of hatred because they don't remember it. Is that the only way out of this trauma? I believe that... um you know, in Reset, that difference was also taken out of their hands because everyone's, uh, everyone was created using randomly mixed DNAs of all their survivors. So in a way, everyone's mixed. And because of that, race doesn't exist. And we know that race is this kind of human concept and construct um, that is in a way, you know, have been used over and over again to divide us. But, you know, if we really take a look around and, um, and reach out to people on the other side and get to know them as human being, I feel that we are so much more similar than we are different. And the way out of this really is just through that. It's, it's rewriting what we were taught. It's in a way erasing our old memories, the things that taught us to fear and hate each other. And we can do that ourselves. We don't need a world to erase our memories. And so we can preserve all the love that we have for another and learn to embrace people who are different from us. That was La Mesa author Serena Dolan speaking to host Maureen Cavanaugh about her book, Reset. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com.